looked at uh, Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, working our way through some of the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel in, in, in the evening. And uh, there, there are a few here in chapter 18 that is, uh, we will be looking at. Uh, but we want to look at the first eight verses. Probably one that we're familiar with. I, I don't know. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Luke the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. He told them the parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continuing coming. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask for, for your, um, uh, that you would open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, hands and our feet. Uh, that our entire being here is a parable about prayer. And we come to you in this time of prayer together as a collected uh, body of believers united in Christ uh, that you would hear our voice and you would show up in a mighty and a unique way and our lives would be transformed as will those around us. May I decrease so that you can increase. Maybe your son we pray. Amen. Maybe. See you. I don't, I don't know about you but as a parent dare I say even as a pastor I find myself having to repeat myself all the time. Uh, you, you find you find that you're just saying the same thing over and over again. And if, if you read through the Gospels, and I think you'll find that Jesus does the same thing. And in fact, one of my concerns about looking at this text this evening is for some of us, uh, maybe you've forgotten about, about it all and I could just drop the point, but, but for some of us, maybe you're, you're thinking, this sounds eerily familiar. I, I think I have read this before. And, and to a certain extent, you have read this recently. And we've looked at a passage just like this quite recently. In fact, if you will, go over chapter 11. Uh, I think this will be good for us to see. Chapter 11 of Luke. Now, why not? Let's just read it. You don't have anywhere else to be this evening. Um, Luke 11. It's not like March Madness even matters this year. So Luke 11, uh, the first uh, few verses there. Uh, Luke 11 begins with the uh, um, Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. So uh, we got that. Uh, but verse 5. He said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on the journey. and have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I'll tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be uh, given to you. Right? Does this sound familiar? I mean, it's virtually the same story, isn't it? In the one, uh, you have a man banging on the door saying, give me bread. I've, 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 I've got guests over and I don't have enough bread for them in the morning. Here it is a woman knocking on the judge's door. Knocking on his chamber saying, I will not stop until I get justice. 
One may be male, the other may be female, but still it is essentially the same story. They both regard prayer. They both regard and model persistence. Yet, yet though they are similar, that doesn't mean that they are the same. What you see in the example of, of Luke 11 is, uh, it is the focus there on, is on boldness. I tell you, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Speak boldly, right? He hears a guy in the middle of the night when his entire family is, is all sleeping in, in, in the single room house. And, and he's risking to wake up uh, mom and dad and his wife and his kids and, and cousins and aunts and uncles. I don't know who all's in here. And you don't want to wake any of them up. So he's pounding on the door and God says, I can choose either to give him some bread so he'll leave me alone or allow him by his insistent banging on the door to to wake everybody up. And that's going to cause me all kinds of headaches, because guess what his wife is going to say when she wakes up? Why didn't you just give him the bread and we will be done with this? Ask boldly, seek with courage. Knock and it will be given to you. But what we get here in chapter 18, yes, there's, there's an emphasis on, on boldness. Certainly we see that with, with as a widow versus a judge. But, but, but really it's about perseverance. So you see it there in, in, in verse 1, don't you? He told them a parable to the effect they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And near the end he says in verse 7, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? You, you see that they are similar That doesn't mean that they are the same. So then let us look at the parable here, particularly in verses 1 to 5. The story opens up in verse 2. It opens up in a city. So it says, he said, in a certain city there was a judge. Now this is the sort of place where judges function, right? I I think we get that. You you think about the way it works. The city here and outside of that is largely farmland. And so if you have matters of law and justice, you're going to come into the city. I grew up in a rural area. If, if, If you need uh, uh, groceries immediately, you stay locally. If you need groceries at a fair price, you go to the cities, right? All around you, right? Where the Walmarts are, right? Or is it only Kentucky fans who says Kroger's puts an S on it? Is, is that something I've discovered this week? So, so some of you all can, can help me with that. Kroger's, that is worse than Walmarts, in my opinion, but that is only opinion. I can't find a verse to back that up, but I will find one. But nevertheless, so, so, so you have judges in the city, you have the courts in the city, all that makes sense. But, but I, I think that it's worth highlighting here that in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, the city is the place of wickedness. And, and, and if you've been with us in our study of Genesis, we've seen this, right? Who, who established the first city and when did he establish it? It was Cain after he murdered his brother. I mean, that's the way to start a city. And then after that, what is the next major city you see in Genesis? It's Babel. Did anything interesting happen there? And then where else do you see cities? You see cities in Egypt and in Babylon and in Syria. In fact, in times, uh, nations are identified by their capital city. Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. If only something fascinating happened there. You know, like the books of Jonah and, and, and Nahum. Or, or Babylon is the capital city of the nation, Babylon. Jerusalem, both the good and the bad, and a little bit of the ugly, a lot of the ugly for, for Israel. But how many times is Israel identified by its city as opposed to by its people? No wonder then what we find in the city is an unjust, crooked, wicked judge. And in fact, you see how he's described there in verse 2, a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
Here we meet a man who has power, but not character. We should note here that the Bible openly and regularly condemns such corrupt judges. Let me give you just one example for the sake of time. In 2 Chronicles 19, it says, Jehoshaphat went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. Notice there the, the connection to city and judges. And he said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man before the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking of bribe. What is he saying here? He said that, that you are a judge, much the same way God is judge over you and every over one you will judge. So to you must judge in such a way that models uh, I, the God that we worship, our judge. Remember what Israel is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the Garden of Eden on earth where God has come down in his temple. So Jehoshaphat says this to them. And that's the problem, that when you choose corruption and wickedness and injustice, you, you, you're, you're flying in the face of the God that has appointed you for, for this position. Now, what we have here with, with a man with power without character is a common trope in uh, Jesus' parables, particularly those in Luke. Go back to the rich man in Lazarus we saw last week. Remember the, the contrast there, right? So, so you have uh, the rich man on one hand, Lazarus on the other. Or think about the shrewd manager. What you have there is Jesus not saying, hey, be a shrewd, unjust manager. What he's saying is, is that even if this guy can get the message, how much more so would God respond in a more righteous way? Um, he is a man, we see this judge, with influence but no integrity. That's one of the things, again, I know we've mentioned some of these other parables, but wealth can buy you many things. It cannot buy you a moral compass. That alone is invaluable. Let me highlight C.S. Lewis here. He makes the point in his essay I would highly, highly recommend to you called Men Without Chest. And his point here is, is if you divide a man into three parts, his head, that's where knowledge is, his stomach, that's where his passions are, and his chest, that's where his moral compass is. And so it's called Men Without Chests. It's about modern education. He says, in a sort of ghastly uh, simplicity, we remove the organ, the heart, and demand the function. We, 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 we remove the chest, but we demand what, what it is that it brings. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the guiltings be fruitful. I, I, I think what he says here is quite profound. His writing is incredible. But, but, but what he says there is something that we are uh, dealing with the fruit of. Our education system wants to fill a bunch of stuff in your head. It, it's going to drive you towards your passions. But heaven forbid you say this act is right or wrong. And we've allowed that within our culture. And then what happens? We're surprised whenever young people become adults, they've never been given a moral foundation to discover there is no moral foundation there. We demand the function, but we, we've removed the organ. What you have here is someone given power, but not character. They have influence, but not integrity. But, but the way the story is written is, again, we want to contrast the judge who is unrighteous and wicked before God with the widow. Again, rich versus poor, powerful versus weak. This is a common trope that Jesus uses in Luke and parables. Now, if this empowered judge lacks character, he is one extreme. We see the other extreme in the widow. She has no wealth. 
She has no influence. She has no authority. Now, it is worth pausing here to highlight the sympathy the Bible shows widows Old and New Testament. And, and the reason that's important isn't just for the sake of our application. Certainly that's there. But you need to see how unheard of this is in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The ancient Near Eastern culture is Nietzschean at best. To where the strong survive. And if you're not strong, well, your time has come. Move along for the next generation. That was not the message of Christianity. We see this in how it, it, it calls on the strong to minister to the weak. Let me give you just a few examples we can highlight here. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, the orphan. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 10, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This is God here. God is the one who is the God of orphan and widow. God is the one that loves widows and orphans. So should you. Don't call yourself God's people if you do not love them. Psalm 68, 5, Father of the fatherless, protector of widow, is God in his holy habitation. I just don't know how to get more clear than that. We're about Jesus in Luke chapter 20. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues, places of honor at feasts, and a lot of followers on Twitter who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Notice there, he say they will profit off the poor. They will, they, they will profit off the weak. They will profit off the vulnerable for themselves. And they stand in God's judgment. Paul says the same thing, honor widows who are truly widows. James, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. I mean, what the Bible says here is just very, very clear. Now, I know this is probably elementary by my dear Watson, but, but it is something we need to remind ourselves because we are growing into a more barbarian age where this stuff doesn't make much sense. We use power to minister to the weak. We use wealth to help those without it. We love those whom everyone else says is unworthy of love. But what is it that the widow wants here? All she wants is justice. She isn't asking for much. She, she is asking for justice. Now, the exact circumstances are not given here, but the indication is that she has apparently been frauded, uh, or defrauded, rather. Now, that is a very serious issue. Remember that if you are a widow at this time, she apparently has no sons uh, or grandsons or anyone like that. She is truly alone. This is a patriarchal society where if, if, if the husband is gone, uh, you have your dowry, but if that is gone, uh, your son takes care of you. Remember what Jesus did upon the cross. He, as the oldest son, says, Mother, here's your son, speaking of John, uh, John the Apostle. John the Apostle, behold your mother. Right? What is he doing there is he is seeing to it that his mother, who is likely a widow, Joseph is probably dead, and uh, her primary benefactor, that would be Jesus, are gone. She is in a very vulnerable situation. She needs someone to look after her. I think we, we, we get this even today, right? Uh, that that, that uh, maybe there is someone in your life that may not be blood-related. Maybe they are blood-related, but you've, you've sort of seen to it that they are taken care of. I, I, th I think we, we understand this. But clearly, her attempts fall on unjust deaf ears. The judge doesn't care about mercy or honor or justice, and thus he denies her requests. Regardless of that, notice what it says there in verse 3. She kept coming to him with the same request. Right? I, something tells me he didn't even know this woman's name. 
All he knew was, that's the woman who wants me to help her out. Boy, she is a thorn in my side. He wakes up, comes into work. You know, he, he's got the, he's got the uh, front parking spot in his nice truck or car. Forget talking to city people. Nice car. And, um, and uh, you know, guess who's waiting right there with him? Uh, I'm sure she's got her signs. She's got her paperwork. She, she's got everything she needs. Uh, what is it she wants? She wants the same thing that she, she's been asking over and over and over again. Give me justice. She knows her appeal is right and just and will not cease until she is heard and vindicate. Now, you really think about it. Uh, we, we love people like this, don't we? We, we, we really love people who uh, they believe in a cause that is just and right, and they will not give up until they win. They will not give up until their, their, their cause is heard. Can I give you uh, one of the best examples of this? This is something you need to keep in, in the back of your mind. This good-looking character, a man by the name of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce lived from 1759 to 1833. Those dates will be on the test at the end. He was a British politician who dedicated his public service to eradicating slavery throughout the British Empire. There's a movie out, came out, you know, what, 10 years, something like that, called Amazing Grace. Um, he, he was converted and was ready to leave uh, the public service because of his faith until he met with uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton had been a slave trader prior to his conversion. And so uh, when Wilberforce met with him, this is all in the movie, um, he encouraged Wilberforce to pick one moral cause that is good for society. And, of course, what is near and dear to Newton and then later Wilberforce was abolishing slavery in the British Empire. Well, so Wilberforce went about it. He says, okay, uh, I'm going to eliminate slavery. Here we go. So he, he offers up legislation to do precisely that. Let me give you the years by which he offered up such legislation that would limit the slave trade. Not abolish slavery, just limit the slave trade. He did this. 1789, 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, 1805. And guess what? It never passed. In fact, the more he did it, the more severe the opposition got for him. In fact, it got so severe, one friend feared, genuinely feared, that if Wilberforce continued barking up this tree, he would literally be barbecued by African merchants, among other things, but I think that is detailed enough for us. Finally, in 1807, after decades of fighting this fight, Wilberforce's efforts um, really changed due to a slave uprising in Haiti. That is what turned the tide for him. And so through that and through his work, and he had laid the groundwork for all these years, again, recommend the movie to you, or a good biography, um, even a, a half good biography, be, be good to look at his story. Uh, the parliament passed banning the slave trade. And so you couldn't, slave, you couldn't trade slaves, but you could, you could still uh, uh, sell and buy and use uh, slaves within uh, the empire itself. Uh, so that became his main focus. Well, it wasn't until 1833. Remember, he first brought this up in 1789. In 1833, in July of that year, three days before his own death, he received word that Parliament had enough votes to forever and always abolish slavery. He dedicated 40 years of his life to it. Finally, it happened. Perhaps the world's fastest man of all time, Usain Bolt. Uh, he, he runs the 100 meters, also runs the 200 meters, but for our purpose, the 100 meters. 
He had this line I came across. I trained four years to run only nine seconds. There are people who do not see results in two months and give up and leave. He's right. I trained four years, really his entire life, to run for nine seconds. How many of us, after a first or second try, give up without much of a fight? And you'll notice there in verses 4 and 5, his persistence pays off. Uh, the, the language here is quite striking. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Self, though I ne- neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continuing uh, coming. Uh, you see, you can see her, right? There she is, pastoring him. She sends an email every day, perhaps every hour. She calls his office. She knows his secretaries, all of them by name. Uh, she campaigns against him. Uh, she, she, she's, she's there. And man, she is just a thorn in her side. Uh, she'll take it to the media. Uh, she, she, she will fight her cause and she will not give up. She is a pest. She is a nuisance to the glory of God, right? This is a matter of justice. This is a matter of doing what is right. And her case will be her. And notice that the judge it says there in the text, said to himself. Now, does that sound familiar in the Luke and parables? It should, because that's precisely the language we find in the prodigal son. Remember, he's out there uh, trying to eat pig food. And then he said to himself, well, what am I doing here? I've got a father over there who is wealthy beyond measure. And if I go to him, I'll have all the food I could ever want. Even his slaves are well fed. And what am I here? I'm lower than the pigs, because at least they're eating, and I can't. This is a way to say that, that, that he, the prodigal, and now the judge have come to their senses. He realizes that he has a problem. He has a thorn in the bottom of his foot, and he could resolve it right now. Don't you just love how stubborn humanity is? I mean, what happens when he gives her justice is, is no different than, than the first day he denied her justice. This problem could have gone away right from the beginning. Let me, this is something I've learned about human nature. Oftentimes we know what we need to do. We know that we will eventually do it. We are just too stubborn to do it right now. Out of laziness, frustration, uh, I like to do things my way. And so he's just dragging this out unnecessarily. So now he's finally going to get rid of, of that thorn. And notice he says, lest she beat me down. Now that means she's wearing him down, right? Just wearing him down. Chances are, if you're, you're a parent or remember your parent, I bet you've been worn down with a few things like, can we get a puppy? 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 Hey, hey, can we get a puppy? Can we get a puppy? Hey, I sure like a puppy. You know what would also, also be great for supper? If we had a puppy, we could play with a puppy. Wouldn't you like to have a puppy? A puppy will be awesome. And you're thinking, okay, I will get this kid a puppy if the both of you will live outside, right? Just leave me alone with this goofy puppy. Puppy. I think, I think we, by the way, that is why we have guinea pigs and cats and fish and had a dog and no doubt we'll have a giraffe and horse and everything else soon. But actually this language, you, you can almost see it in the English, can't you? It's a boxing term. It means to strike someone in the eye. Now, I, I took karate growing up. Have you ever like, been hit in the eye? Hopefully not, not, not at a church business meeting, but have you ever really been hit in the eye? When I was in karate, we wore headgear, but you could still get knocked right in the eye. That was a point against you in a tournament, by the way, but, but you get hit in the eye. Um, whenever I was in high school, played soccer, the, the greatest communist sport in the world, but it's still fantastic. The only good thing communists have ever given us, okay? 
Um, but, but I remember I was playing, I was a senior year in high school. The day before my, my senior yearbook picture, uh, senior picture, I, I should have found it. And I, I could show it, put it up here. I went up for a header. The other guy went up for the header. The difference is I went straight up, which is legal. This guy went sideways, went right into the side of my eye. And I remember I fell, got back up. I said, oh, no big deal. It'll, it'll heal. The problem is, is that what was up was now down. What was once down was now up. And so I started to stumble around like, like a charismatic during the first hymn, right? I mean, you're just, you're just getting into it, right? It's getting really good. That was, I'm kind of proud of that joke. Just give me a minute to enjoy that one. It just came right off my head and, uh, except I said hymn and they don't do hymns. That's not spiritual enough. Anyways, um, some charismatics are watching this and are deeply offended and that's their problem. Um, but uh, I remember, so, so, so I had that, and I had to go off the bench because I, I didn't know where the bench was, right? I just, just couldn't see. I ended up with a, with a pretty shiner. You remember the next day is my senior yearbook pictures, right? And it was the only time, I feel like I have to give that whole story to justify because we live in a weird transgender time. It's the only time in my life I've ever worn women's makeup. And so I had a lady friend and said, what are you going to do about your eye? You know, we, we had pictures together. I said, oh, I don't know. I'll just take it like this. No, your mother's not going to approve of that. And then she goes, well, I don't know what to do. I got makeup. And so, well, okay. I, I guess drastic times, drastic measures. And then she asked a question. Never thought someone asked me. He goes, what shade are you? <laughs> I, 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 I had no idea that was such a thing. You know, it's just like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've never had anyone explain that to me. And nevertheless, you, you get hit in the eye and, and you, you, you're, you're dis, disorganized, you're disorientated and everything. And so here you have a woman, a widow nonetheless, poor widow. And what is it? She is knocking him out, wearing him down, will not give up until he surrenders. Got him in the chokehold and everything. And so he finally gives up, and he gives her precisely what it is that she wants. And what she wants isn't outlandish. It's just justice. A small thing to him, but it means everything to her. That's the parable. What do we do with the practice? What's the point here? One of the great advantages here is that Jesus tells us uh, and shows us where the answer is right, right up front. It's really nice. And, you know, sometimes it's at the end, sometimes it's not there at all, sort of like what we saw this morning, but it's right, right in the front there. Is there in verse 1? I, I, I had this experience the other day. Um, I couldn't find my keys. I, I think I'd come in for lunch or something like that, and then it's time for me to go, and I just couldn't find my keys. In fact, I grabbed the spare keys. But the problem is the spare keys are the last keys, which makes me wonder, what if I lose these keys too, you know? And I won't be able to show off my 98, right? You know, and, um, and my wife found them. They were still in the door from where I unlocked the, the door, right? And so had I looked the first place there was to look, I would have found the answer. So too, if you want to know the meaning of this parable, you need to start right from the beginning. The first place that we're, where we began is right there in verse 1, isn't it? He told them a parable. Why? To the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose hearts. Now, that is it. The purpose of the, of the parable is that you can be like this widow, that you would pray without ceasing. That's the point. To pray and to pray and then to pray some more. And he'll say there at the end, as we've seen, that God isn't unrighteous like this judge, but being that, that even this unrighteous judge understands this concept, how much more so with your 
heavenly, holy Father understand this, this concept. But even that, we, we, we need to back it up even a little bit. There is an immediate context here that is of vital importance, and that regards the second coming. For the sake of time, if you were to go back to chapter 17, Jesus concludes that chapter talking about his eventual return. So you get in chapter 17, verse 20. Uh, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now notice what he did there. The question regarding the second coming, he says, Don't overlook the first coming. Jesus' kingdom theology is is both here and now, and it's uh, uh, there and coming, right? It's both here and future. His, that's his kingdom theology. And if we had time, we could go at it. But skip down to verse 22 to 24. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So this clearly, the days of the Son of Man, clearly second coming. And they will say to you, look there and look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Again, if we had time, we, we could go through the, the entire passage and look at it. But, but what you need to see here is he's saying the day will come when the Son of Man will come. He will return for his bride. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, what does it say? So Jesus told them a parable to the effect that you should pray without ceasing. You see, you see why context is so important. See, usually what we do with this parable is we say, see, Jesus is saying that if there's something you really, really want, you should pester him into submission. Right? And, 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 and it, it preaches really well. But, but there's a context here that we have to take seriously. Jesus reminds us that between his ascension and his return, here at the end of chapter 17, there will be much anticipation, much anxiousness, and much suffering for his church, but Christians should not lose hearts. Is this not a practical point in a time of pandemic and cultural chaos? Have we not spent the last year, not to mention last decade or so, in utter and complete panic? And that's the context of this parable. Hey guys, look, look, stormy days are coming. And you're going to cry out, waiting for it all to come to an end, for, for me to finally return. But don't lose hearts. And that is why he can state there in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? You see, it's, it's not about getting goodies from God. It's about persevering through troubling times, waiting for his final return. That's the context of the parable. If even an unrighteous, wicked judge will listen to the persistence of a widow, how much more so will our righteous father? That is the major difference between the persistent and bold neighbor of chapter 11 and the widow of chapter 18. This is an eschatological prayer. A prayer about justice, righteousness, and the kingdom of God. After all, if we were to go back to chapter 11, you remember that that, that parable with, with the bold neighbor is introduced with the Lord's Prayer. You remember what, what we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then what did we see here? What is the prayer? Your kingdom come. 
come. Think about it. What percentage of our prayers are about God's kingdom becoming a reality? Any? Any at all? How persistent are we that God might be hallowed among the nations, glorified among his people, that his kingdom arrive now? Isn't that how the Bible ends? Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Quickly. I think we would do better as a church and as the people of God if we prayed less for the results of election and more for Christ's kingdom to be realized? Or do we just give up too easily? But you'll notice there, the parable doesn't end at verse 6 and 7. It ends at verse 8. Isn't that funny how that happens? 8 always follows 7. And do you see what verse 8 says? It should sober us up, church. Remember the context regards the second coming, and he mentions when the Son of Man arrives, clearly connecting to everything he said in chapter 17. We're not, we're not making up this context or no application from it. He concludes this parabolic teaching with a haunting question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find this sort of faith on earth? Will he? A sort of faith that says, I will not surrender. Until I am vindicated. I will not surrender until justice is realized. I will not surrender until Christ is glorified. I will not surrender until the kingdom comes. I will not stop until the mission is done. When the Son of Man comes, would he find this sort of faith on earth? What a scary question that is, isn't it? Because before verse 8, we assumed that he would. And now it's sobering to think maybe... Maybe he wouldn't. What will he find in your heart? What will he find in your home? What will he find in our church? Let's pray.